Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context. And today on the program, we've got Dr. Peter Orr. I came across Dr. Orr on a Crossway book. Now, we've talked about Crossway. They have been a very kind publisher to In Context, and they give us great help when we're looking for subject matter experts. And Peter wrote a kind of a tongue-in-cheek article back in November called How to Crush Your Pastor. And I read it, and uh, having been a pastor in the 43 years of ministry, a lot of those years being a pastor of a local church, I went, yep, yep, yep. (laughs) I need to know this guy. So we did a little homework on Dr. Orr, and he is a lecturer in the New Testament field at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. Although when he talks, you're going to pick up, he ain't from Australia, he's from Ireland. He's written Exalted Above the Heavens, The Risen and Ascended Christ, and he's also a contributor to Theology is for Preaching and Romans and the Legacy of St. Paul. Peter and his wife Emma have four sons, and they're members at All Saints is it Peter Shum or Peter Sham? Peter Shum. Peter Shum. Thanks for coming on the broadcast, Peter. It's my pleasure. It's great to be with you this morning. Let's jump into my first question for you is you obviously have a heart for pastors, but from your vita, you're an academic. You're not a pastor in a local church unless I missed something. That's right. I work at a, a seminary in Australia, and in that role, I train pastors. So yes, there is the academic side of the job, but really our goal at Moore College is to train people for pastoral ministry, men for the the pastorate, and then we also have a lot of female students who become missionaries or chaplains. And so, you know, in the 10 years or so that I've been doing that, I've known a lot of people go out from the, the seminary and go into pastoral ministry. Would you say most pastors are under-encouraged and discouraged and have a lot of expectations thrown at them? I think so. And I think it's increasing. I think the Mm. pressure of the last few years exacerbated that. You know, pastors had to navigate their way through COVID. And, you know, like all of us, we, you know, we're we're human, we're, we're fallible, we make mistakes. But I think some of the pressure that COVID put on people just increase the stress and discouragement that the pastors are feeling. So certainly the, the friends that I have in pastoral ministry, the people that I've trained in speaking to them, that would be the general kind of feel that I'm picking up. It was anecdotal and many years ago, but I heard Rick Warren make a comment and there was some percentage he threw out that I don't remember, but he said the average pastor leaves his church over six or seven critics. And I started going through my own Rolodex of friends I know that have been burned and had injuries. And, and, and I went, yeah, it was a couple of elders or deacons or a woman that was really upset about this or that. And they just woke up with, you know, they might have a church of several hundred or a thousand, but it's those handful that just wear them down. That's right. And often those are the, the critics are the most vocal and everyone else in the church might be perfectly happy, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily articulate that. And in the things that I've been writing, the articles and the books, that's what I've been trying to get people to be more self-consciously articulating their encouragement to their pastor, not just assuming that, uh, oh yeah, he knows I'm happy with him or he knows that I'm praying for, but to actually tell him that you're doing that. Yeah. You've also written four ways to save your pastor from burnout. What if I differ from my pastor on politics, which I think you're kind of a veiled reference to some of the challenges we've been through because 
we can talk about the states with Trump. And when Donald Trump was president, there was, in my lifetime, never a more divisive political firebrand among evangelicals. And I'm just going to talk about conservatives, forget mainline. But there was just, I mean, and people that we respect on both sides were vitriolic. This wasn't a kind conversation. And then, of yeah. course, COVID, you know, our church went through its own navigation. And no matter what pastors did, you were criticized. If you held services, if you didn't hold services, if you did distancing, we probably lost half our congregation during COVID and picked up a half again and 20% more during COVID because we continued meeting and sanitizing. We did the protocols and people would come say, my church isn't meeting. <laughs> and I'm like, we're believers in Jesus Christ. Can't we take a time out here and say, you're an adult, make a choice? <laughs> That's right. And so often we, yeah, I'm not saying these are not important issues or difficult issues, right. but I think sometimes, and maybe COVID's not a great example because it was so kind of acute, but sometimes we we lose a sense of proportion and mm. you hear people leaving churches over the color of the carpet and whether, you know, the seating arrangement and things like that. And I'm not saying those aren't important though, they don't have implications, but really when you step back and, and think about it, sometimes, you know, we just got to have a sense of proportion and say, yeah, it's ridiculous that we're having live green carpet in the, you know, in, in the hallway, but I, you know, it's, it's not going to make me leave the, you know, leave the church. Let's talk about this from a couple of angles from Obviously, you're writing to a broad spectrum audience. You know, I'd love for elders and deacons and those in leadership to read even some of your articles, much less the book would be great. And again, as always, we have all of this information in the show notes of the podcast. The book Fight for Your Pastor is the one that triggered my interest in Dr. Orr. But let's talk first about the leadership structure of a given church. And and that's it varies a lot. You've got Presbyterians, you've got elders, you've got elder rule, you've got congregation. But what do you see as perhaps the simplest way these groups could understand some of these conflicts and encourage their pastor, help him succeed? Yeah, I think intentionality. I think realizing that your pastor is human. Yes, he's you know been called by God and he's been called by the church, and he's got responsibilities that many other people don't, but he's a human being. He's probably got a family. He's facing the pressures that other people face, and so he needs prayer. I mean, I was really struck in preparing the book, thinking about the Apostle Paul, and uh, the Apostle Paul is someone we often put up on a pedestal when we think of him as the closest thing to a super-Christian, and yet time and time again in his letters— Paul says, you know, please pray for me. Second Corinthians, he says, you know, you must help us, him and his colleagues, by your prayers. And yeah. so I think realizing that, yes, the pastor is the leader, that means all the more we need to support him and actively support him. We think that if we're not causing him problems, then that's enough. But actually actively praying for him, actively encouraging him, actively telling him that we're praying for him, those are all basic things. I think because they're so basic, we often overlook them. And your somewhat tongue-in-cheek article about how to crush your pastor, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. I'm not trying <laughs> to make that diminutive. I really enjoyed it. Number four, you talked about treat everything as a gospel issue. I've seen this, again, I'm, I'm 65. In the last eight to 10 years, Peter, this has become a lightning rod. And if you don't say the word gospel, 
enough if you don't talk about every verse is the gospel. And the one that I really scratch my head at, and I, I love my Reformed friends, but they get on these idioms of preach the gospel to yourself. I go, what does that even mean? But this idea that everything has to be the gospel. And I go, okay, are you sharing the gospel with your lost friend? <laughs> no, yeah. that's where my brain goes. I thought it was noteworthy that you point that out. I had a friend that was driven out of his church over a book that I won't name, but he was given this book. And it was essentially, you have to preach the gospel every sermon. And I'm going, well, there's an argument to be made that, yes, we are a gospel-centered life, but there's also discipleship. There's also right. Christian marriage. There's also, you know, the Proverbs, which I'm teaching right now. So I'm prattling. So help me out here. How did this become such a lightning rod, and how do we navigate it when people are passionate about my favorite pastor that I follow says you got to preach the gospel all the time? Yeah, it's really interesting. There's lots of things we could say, but one one angle might be, have we exalted the sermon, which I think is the most important part of the service, to almost being the only part of the service? So why does mm. the sermon have to explicitly articulate the gospel every time? Whereas, you know, if you structure the service, you know, you can have Bible readings, you can have kind of gospel summaries as part of the service. And so then the sermon can preach the passage faithfully as God intended it. And, you know, as you said, if you're preaching through Proverbs, it's definitely connected to the gospel, obviously, but you can't articulate the gospel as clearly if you're preaching, you know, Proverbs 15 as 1 Corinthians 15, the beginning of which Paul gives a mm. summary of the gospel. So it's actually an artificial way of thinking about preaching. Whereas if you construct the service and, you know, there are Christian traditions which kind of place a lot more emphasis on liturgy. And I know liturgy can be a limited word in certain contexts, but liturgy is just the way that we organize service. Everyone's got a liturgy, just whether we are conscious of it or not. You know, we could, in, we could bring the gospel into our services. Some churches might not be comfortable with saying the Apostles' Creed, but we could just, we could recite the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 in our services or Colossians 1 or Philippians 2. So, Stepping back again and thinking of the service as a whole won't help. That's just one angle that sometimes gets overlooked in this debate. I'm only going to bring this up because he wrote the foreword to your book, and that's Dane Ortland. Dane has been through a very trying time himself. I respect, you know, some of the people in this argument very well, but the way it was handled yep. was just, it was mind-numbing. Peter, help me out. What am I missing here? And you know, and I it was it was nice that you had him tee up your book. Yeah, his book Gentle and Lowly through criticism from some quarters, which I find strange, is a beautiful book, a very helpful book. And it just seems that there's a, a kind of gut reaction among some people that unless you're saying everything in every book, you're somehow distorting the gospel. And again, it's just a lack of proportion. We have Paul didn't write the same letter to each of his churches. You read Romans and you read 1 Corinthians. Romans has a little bit on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians has more. Does that mean that somehow, you know, Paul was compromising when he wrote the letter of Romans? That's verging on blasphemous to say that. But sometimes we, we just have such a cookie cutter view of what the gospel is and how you can communicate the gospel and you have to say everything every single time. 
I just don't think that's the model that the apostles give us. Even if you look at the sermons and acts, there are different emphases. They don't deny any aspect of the gospel, but they'll emphasize different things in different contexts. And I think perhaps you know, Dan in writing a book understood that you know in this particular context, this is the aspect of Jesus that needs to be emphasized. We've seen, and I don't know what it's like in Australia or Ireland, but we've seen in evangelical churches in the West here, one of the big divisions has been between the more bulldogmatic and black and white approach that I was trained with, with, you know, exposition and my hermeneutic is non-negotiable and the way people have reacted and moved away, you can criticize for example, the millennial, you can criticize a group that's leaving the said churches, or you can also recalibrate and say, well, how do we communicate the same truth with some different words? My friend Ken Boa has written a textbook basically on discipleship, but he used the word spiritual formation. And I took him to task. I said, Ken, you've caved. And he, Ken, by the way, is brilliant. And Ken said to be Michael, Sometimes you have to change the words a little bit so people will listen. <laughs> and, and it didn't change theology. Even biblical words get sort of distorted and people think they're using them the way the Bible uses them. As you say, maybe using a fresh phrase might actually bring out the truth of the, the Bible's teaching. Again, I'm one of the most bulldogmatic guys you're going to find, but I also realize there's a bandwidth where, you know, even in my preaching and teaching, using the plural pronoun more, you know, instead of you and your, and you know, Cindy and I, we struggle with this. And yeah. this is a real problem for me. Yeah. Even that, which is not changing the gospel or the biblical narrative, it's identifying that I'm a big sinner, just like everyone sitting in the church. That's been one of the demarcations that I've noted in Homiletics, but okay, let's get back to the comparison with the wonderful benefit of podcasts and internets. Everybody has their Apollos, Cephas, and Paul. How do you train your pastors in waiting and pastors that you minister with not to get caught up in this? You know, it, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, John Piper, Tim Keller. I mean, I'm always struck with, did you read First Corinthians chapter 1? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, a couple of things we actually teach First Corinthians in our assembly program. So hopefully more will have gone through those texts. But also, we try to teach from first principles. So we do a lot of exegesis, a lot of theology where we kind of read different people. And so... It builds up a picture where you can draw helpful things from a wide variety of people. And the people you mentioned all have great things, and they probably all have weaknesses. And it's just being mature enough to recognize that the person who's been used by God is not perfect, and that's okay. I can still benefit from them, and I don't need to condemn them just because of the things that they do that I don't necessarily agree with. Just trying to inculcate that sort of attitude in the people that we're training, I think, is helpful. I'm scanning through your book and looking at and so many things I'd love to, to ask you about, but let, let me give you the tee up. Two things that if you had to distill them, that would be percentage-wise perhaps the most challenging fights or conflicts that pastors get into from whomever the person in power or the critic might be. I think the number one would be a wrong understanding of what the pastor's job is 
So this idea that the pastor is my kind of personal life coach or, you know, needs to be at my beck and call, uh, I think that creates very unrealistic expectations, which, you know, no pastor can live up to. And so that fuels kind of disappointment. And, you know, the, the idea the pastor is meant to be my best friend. And that's related to the kind of second one, which is a misunderstanding that, you know, the pastor is, yeah, he's the leader that, you know, the Lord has appointed over the, the, the flock, but he's not the only one who does the ministry in the church and that we're meant to be serving one another and mm-hmm. we're all meant to be plugged into the life of our church. And it's not just the pastor doing everything. And I think so many of the criticisms come from people who won't lift a finger to do anything and then criticize the pastor because who's, you know, stretched, you know, to breaking point because he's not doing enough. Each one of those we could talk at length about the, my best friend one, I used to do a, a, quite a few pastors workshops in my former life. I had this maxim, uh, one of my workshops was called beware the wagon that meets the train. And it was the idea when you first come into a church, there are people that befriend you. And I actually, I would never disclose it, but <laughs> I had names attached to these and people that became my friend. And then going forward, how that mutated into unrealistic expectations, demands, because I was ergo their friend and somehow beholding to them. And then the most interesting and somewhat egregious one I had to work through early in ministry, the first church I served, I had one guy in particular that I loved to death, and he was probably the best evangelist we had in the church. He was a business guy. He was successful in his field. But I was only a friend in so long as I was the pastor of that church. And when we moved from church A to church B, he dropped me like a rock. Uh, it was hurtful, but beyond the that immaturity on my part, it was illustrative that just because you have a title, there's certain people that are going to gravitate to be the pastor's friend. Yeah. And if I was a leg person in a local church, Peter, I don't know that I'd want to be known <laughs> Pastors, <laughs> maybe because I know too much, but it's like really your identity is tied to being the pastor. So this idea of beware the wagon that used to train. Now the other side of this, you can't not have friends in the church. That's true. Yep, it's almost like a love relationship because you have this friendship, but then they burn you, or they expect you, or they get hurt, or you hurt them, and it's like, oh my lands, and that's the part perhaps of the three you ticked off that was the most challenging for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, pastors also have to navigate this and, you know, it depends on the size of the church. You know, if you're in a a, really big church, it can be very hard to have friends within the church. Smaller church, maybe it's easier, but it's important. And this is something we can do as congregation members to just encourage our pastors to have good friends and to have outlets and, you know, encourage them to, go on conferences and, you know, retreats and things like that. And not sort of to despise that, but to realize that they need kind of right. spiritual, yeah, they need to be, be spiritually refreshed. And that's in a sense, but it's selfishly, that's to our benefit, you know, because if the pastor's in a kind of healthy place, then yes. we'll, we'll benefit more from his ministry. And that's hard for the church to understand I, their expectation level. I, you know, when I was at this very large church in Virginia, DC, the expectation that I preached every Sunday was extraordinary. And even though I was allocated, you know, a four-week vacation and we had special missionary speakers and youth Sunday, if I was gone on those days, oh, 
goodness, the criticism I got. And I'm like, well, when am I supposed to take my vacation? <laughs> You know, yeah. and part of it was me building or pastors building a little bit of a hide and they learned to graciously say to people, I appreciate that. I, I really is humbling that you wanted to bring your friend and they didn't get to hear me. I appreciate that. But the body of Christ is big and it's wonderful and bring them again. You know, you yeah. have to learn some bridge and block language when people come at you. When I was trained in my days at Dallas Seminary, the older instructors discouraged us from having friends in the church yeah. because of what they'd seen and that we're always overcompensating. Right. And yeah. so going forward at this last quarter, literally of my life, the runway's short at my age, I'm looking at my friendships in the church and I'm very judicious about who I spend time with. And I say no to eight out of 10 things because I don't have the emotional energy to try to listen to their expectations, much less I know this sounds very catty and not very Christian. I don't care. I don't have the time for their project. I love that they have their project. I'm glad they're in XYZ Parachurch. I just don't have the energy yeah. or the capacity. And that, you know, at 65, I can say that. At 30, that's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, that little uh, kind of expression you use about developing a hide. That's probably something I could have emphasized a little bit more. I mean, it, it wasn't the, the angle that I was taking in the book, but I, I think you're right that there is a part in which I could generally in the culture as a whole, we find it harder to take criticism. Now, I'm, I'm arguing that the criticism that pastor kind of faces is often utterly unrealistic. But yeah, there is a point where we just need to sort of realize that you know, it's just part of human life. Not everyone's going to like us and people are going to criticize us. Yeah. And yeah, we need to sort of deal with that. Yeah. I had a senior gentleman mentor me a little bit for a phase when I was going from a, a medium-sized church to a big church. And he made the comment, he said, do not work for everyone to like you, but work so that they will respect you. For, yeah. And that was a helpful nuance for me. And I'll never forget getting entangled. And DC is a power-broking town in Northern Virginia. People expect things. They're at the top of their game. These are bright folks. I remember one guy coming down and I don't remember the issue, but we made some position clear, clearer. And he came down and there was always a line after our service, which is kind of comical that people want to talk to you. So he's in line and he gets there and, and he, he's a big, powerful guy. And he was clear. He wasn't angry, but he said, I disagree. I think you're wrong. It was a bad decision. And then he said, but I respect you. Yeah. Now, that's really, that's great. And he walked away. And I remember in the back of my head going, thank you, Earl Comfort. You taught me. Yeah. <laughs> I just yep. saw it work. <laughs> but again, are the experiences that an average pastor has, you know, you could codify them like you've done in your book or, or kind of organize them, but they all kind of fall under this, be the man God wants you to be with courage and gentleness and patience, but you have to also be able to say no. Yeah, that's right. Let's talk a little bit about expectations. You're bound to have heard some interesting, creative, funny stories about expectations and pastors. Yeah, I remember hearing of a pastor who was counseling a, a wife whose husband had just left her, and she was distraught, obviously, as, as you would expect. And she was in the church car park. And so someone else was leading the service. So he was all talking with her, counseling her. And then he went in to just preach the sermon. And then he came out again. 
to kind of help her. She ended up heading off home and someone else came up to him. And because the pastor hadn't replied to an email, you know, he started jabbing his finger at him and saying, you know, you, you don't have a pastoral bone in your body. You know, just the, the irony that he'd spent, you know, the yeah. whole service, you know, when he was preaching as well. So, you, you know, the, the stress when you're getting ready to preach. Oh, goodness, And then this, yeah. this person had just kind of come up and, you know, blasted their him. Spleen, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's very helpful. Yeah, Sunday's a great, t- that should have been in your, maybe it's in your full text, you know, attack the pastor on Sunday between Sunday, sermons. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Give him a yeah. piece of your mind before he preaches. Yeah. Kick him when he's very... gone. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why the old school guys hid in the study. You know, they went yes. out the back door and then right. went to their study. I don't want to deal with people right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I continue to be concerned with your helping a very critical area for especially younger pastors to have, you know, a stick to But how do they keep their nose in the book? Yeah. And keep teaching the scripture, Peter, because this to me solves a multitude of sins. Yeah. If you're clear on your primary job is to study, to pray, to think through a passage, to uh, stand back and look at the church where God has planted you to serve and say, how do I help these people grow in their faith, become better husbands, wives, better parents, grandparents, love their neighbors, share Christ. And that gets lost in committees expectations, demands, that to me seems to be the one, not missing, but one thing that maybe these young guys or young guys don't know how to be moored. Yeah. And I think uh, you touched on it earlier, you know, learning to say no, learning that there's certain things you you just can't do and, you know, it wouldn't be wrong to do it. It'd be nice to do it. But if you say yes to that, it's going to take you away from the main game. It's easy for me, you know, I teach in a seminary, it's easy for me to kind of say that I know on the ground, the personal pressure, it's very hard, but just to at least have that idea that, you know, if I say yes to these things, it's going to take me away from, from the main game. It means that my sermon won't be as well prepared or, you know, whatever it might be. So I'm not saying it's easy, but just having that kind of that understanding. And again, what, what you said earlier was really helpful that, you know, I'm not here as a pastor to be liked. Obviously, I want friends. Obviously, obviously you're sure. human. We want to be liked. But if I can just kind of make sure that that is not my main goal, that will help me to, to as you say, keep the main thing the main thing. I have worked very hard. And in fact, I had someone ask me this week, they said, what is it about you? You have so many friends. And I said, it probably speaks to my insecurity in life. But I've always worked to have friends outside of the yep. ministry. Yeah. You know, I've got a long list of close friends and I have five, I call them closer than brothers and they know all my secrets and I know theirs. And Peter, I don't think a few days go by. In fact, on the drive into studio today, I was talking to my buddy, Dave Gibson, who I've known for 40 years and we've both been in, you know, ministry. He's been overseas in missions work and so forth, but, but he's the brother I never had in some respects. Yeah. But I get his world and he gets my world. And, you know, when I tell these stories, again, with pastors workshop, they pastors come up to me and they'll say things. How do I get friends like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that might be a generational thing. It may be that the younger generation, it's it's harder to form those kind of friends. But I think you're 100% right. That is so important because you can't do it on your own. And there's going to be decisions that you'll make as a pastor that will be unpopular, right, but unpopular, which means 
you know, it's just going to be harder to draw that kind of comfort from people within the congregation. And so while we don't want to go back to that sort of old model that, you know, you don't, you, you know, you shouldn't be close to anyone in the congregation, that, that's not right. But I think you're 100% right that you really do need close friends who understand ministry, ideally. That's why, you know, sem seminary is a great thing. That's often where people yeah. kind of develop those friends. Yeah. yeah. I tell guys who, and I, I've had very successful pastors that have told me I don't have any friends. And you know, it's the most striking thing, and I bet you have this too with former students. They consider you their best friend. It's sad, but it's also, okay, okay, Lord, I want to help this person. But when they look at me as, and, and I have people that email me and they'll say, you're my best friend. I go, Lord, help this person. Because the vacuous nature that they have yeah. no friendships. And, you know, as a pastor, you can't always tell your wife things you're really, yep. you know, hurting with because you don't want to have them discolor their view of the Lord's church. I remind our church here at Stonebridge, where I serve right now, I tell them all the time, this is not my church. This is Christ's church. I always encourage pastors, never use the first person pronoun when talking about your church. Yeah. You're a member yeah. of a church, sure, but don't ever say my church if you're a pastor. But yeah. you know, how do you help these guys? I would tell them, think of it like courting. Have a lunch, have a burger, yeah. have a coffee, yeah. and see how it goes. And yeah. you might yeah. meet three times and say, eh. you might meet five and click. You might meet yeah. once and click. And the other thing is, I think they're transitional. There are times yeah. when these relationships are very close and then things change. You move, yeah. interests change. But I just find the fabric of a lot of men who was the one that wrote the book, The Friendless American Male, these guys just don't know how to have friends that will, as, as Dave Gibson says, Michael, I don't know if you need encouragement or a dope slap. I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think friendship more broadly in our culture, we we don't understand it. And it's a you know, I think some good Christian thinking on friendship would be a good thing to do because we sometimes artificially put our you know expectations of friendship on, as you say, whether it's a seminary professor or I think even sometimes, you know, the idea that my wife is my best friend, I mean that's mm -hmm. that's true. That is true. But you also need friendships outside of outside yeah. of the marriage because, as you say, there's certain things you just it wouldn't be right to talk to your wife about because, as you say, it might be unhelpful for her in the context of the church. But so talking to another ministry friend and sort of saying, "Look, there's this person in this church in our church who's doing this. What you know? What do I do? Or how do I you know how do I survive that?" I think yeah, you're absolutely right. Encouraging people in ministry to cultivate those kinds of friendships. I tell guys again, it's, it goes back to initiative. You have to take the initiative. I mean, if you have a pastor friend that calls you, bless God, bless God. But most people don't. And that vulnerability can only come over time. You don't reveal your whole, you know, yeah. life story and situation on the first date, so to speak. Talk to me and help a little bit because you probably have a number of former students and I have a number of former pastors that were burned to the point that they're done with ministry they're bitter toward that church. And unfortunately, it's back to that handful of people, but it's the church. They move away from God. They're not bad people. They're not, but they're hurt. And that hurt has taken a toll. I have a handful of guys and they're fried and they're done. And they're doing different things in their quote profession. 
you've bound to have come across that and you've bound to have written some of your books and articles because those guys are in the back of your mind? Yeah, I mean, it is tragic. Obviously, the most tragic is when someone walks away from the Lord altogether because of their experience. And thankfully, that's relatively rare. But I guess, you know, those who they serve in pastoral ministry for a season and then they go into another field. I mean, I know people who take a step to the side and they'll join a parachurch organization. And I think that's that's great. In one sense, it's sad that they the reason that it happened was because of the difficulties in their church. But still, mm-hmm. you know, they're serving the Lord actively. Others will go into secular work, but they'll remain, you know, part of a church. And I guess the key thing is it's bitterness, it is to just to try to make sure that the bitterness doesn't consume them. You know, again, we've got to be human, we've got to be honest. There will be difficulties and sadness and bitterness. Let me poke a little bit more there. Talk to that pastor, because I've got a couple in mind who are bitter, and they'll acknowledge it. They'll yeah. say, I know I'm bitter, and yeah. I don't know what to do with it. And I've prayed, and I've prayed to forgive these people that did injustices toward me. And I've tried to analyze what I did wrong or what I didn't do, but I am bitter. How do you help that guy? It's long-term. You know, there's no easy answers. It's, it's going to take time. Deep hurts aren't healed overnight. And I would say just keep walking with the Lord, the means for grace, going to church, keep praying. I mean, it's good that you, you kind of continue to pray for those who hurt you, but it could take kind of five, 10 years before, you know, it starts to, starts to fade. If you've been hurt really deeply, and particularly if your family's been caught up in it, that is the power of the gospel. I'm not, I'm, you know, again, it's easy for me to sort of say these things. It's a long road, but, you know, the Lord promises, you know, that he will, you know, restore you. In Psalm 23, you know, restores my soul. I think that's the kind of promise to hang on to. It may be a long road, but yeah, I think just keep going. You talk in one of your chapters about encouragement. I tell a rather lengthy story about writing my 30-page term paper and seminary on my philosophy of ministry that I was so proud of, and no one ever asked to read it, you know. The first church I went to, I i mean, I was 28, nine years old. I was, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know, and I was dumb. I gave it to all the elders. <laughs> like, Here's my philosophy of ministry. I'm so proud of it. I don't think any one of them read it, and which was good. And then over the years, I distilled it to five points. Everybody needs a friend. Everybody is under-encouraged. Everybody is insecure. Everybody needs undivided attention. And then one I added later was lead, but don't drive. I literally have these glued in the front of every Bible I ever use as a reminder. And I was so glad that you spent some time because I truly believe everybody is under encouraged. And when some, you know, there's a dear woman in our church now named Chris, let's just say she's over 70 and she is delightful, loves the Lord. She's candid and she writes me these notes back handwritten notes still are strong in my worldview and she says all kinds of things to me and i show them to cindy and i go see cindy there's one person that loves me and she just (laughs) rolls her eyes you know (laughs) but it's that encouragement that means so much to everyone yeah and it's so easy you know auto communication you know you can send a text message to your pastor and say thanks for the sermon and try and be specific you know thanks for the sermon this morning i was really challenged by point x or 
you know, yes. your explanation of verse 32 was really helpful, but yeah, to be, be intentional with encouragement. Well, give me some final thoughts. I know I haven't asked the best questions that you would maybe want to address. <laughs> so I, no, seriously. So, cause this is your worldview. This is where you live. So give me kind of the Dr. Peter or how you encourage pastors. And let me ask both sides. What would you say to leadership structures about, yeah. you know, and we haven't talked about pastors that are in trouble or pastors that are, you know, preaching bad sermons or whatever, you know, that's a different interview, but how do we talk to these leaders and how do you talk to the pastors who are getting hurt and beat up and neglected? So to the leaders, I would say two things, be intentional and be thoughtful. So be intentional in terms of encouragement and prayer and telling the pastor that you're doing that and be thoughtful in the sense of just step back don't kind of fire off i think we we so often just fire off be thoughtful and think okay you know what the pastor is doing here is i like like your friend earlier you know i don't necessarily agree with it but it's not you know it's not outside the pale I, do i need to raise this with him no i don't actually so you know be intentional be thoughtful i know that's both quite vague words but I think just to stop and think, stop and think and not just react, because I think so often in our kind of social media age, we react rather than, you know, be thoughtful and intentional. How can I encourage my pastor? How can I pray for him? So I think that's what I would say. And I said two things, but I'm going to add a third one. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I mentioned in the book is forgive your pastor. And, and there's a lot of complexity in there where we're not, I'm not talking about, you know, what we call the big ticket sins or the major the major things. It's just the sort of little personal blips that we all experience in every relationship. And we have to forgive one another. And I think sometimes we expect our pastor to be perfect. And so when they do something, they might be a little bit short with us or they might take too long to respond to our message. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Lord calls us to forgive. We don't have to kind of call out every sin or, uh, you know, everything. So that would be what I'd say to the leadership structure and, and people in the churches to the pastor. I think some of the things that we've been talking about and that you've pointed out are really helpful. You know, be realistic with how people are going to respond to you in your church. You're not going to be liked by everyone. And I think what what we've talked about, it's so important for the pastor to have good friends that they can talk to and not just mentors. You know, mentors are important, but mentors Mm -hmm. are not the same as kind of, you know, guys that you're in the trenches with. And, you know, guys who sort of been there, you know, last week, you know, the mentor sort of has worked through it 20 years ago and come out the other side. But the the guy, you know, the, the good friend, you know, last week you were talking to him because he was discouraged. And then this week, you're, you know, he's talking to you because, you know, you're discouraged. Right. And I think that that is really valuable. I often tell guys, you know, remember they're sheep. Yeah. They're sheep. Even the strong, good, godly folks in your church, they're sheep. And you and I are sheep. I wish yep. Jesus would have had a... Another metaphor for <laughs> pastors as sheep dogs, not just yeah. elders. Because <laughs> he's the shepherd. I just run around nipping at heels, right? <laughs> Dr. Peter Orr, he is at the University of Durham in Australia, where he is a lecturer at the Moore Theological College written numerous books. They'll all be in the show notes. Peter, thanks for your time. And I hope you continue to enjoy your travels. And as you go back to teach, uh, especially these young pastors, that God's given them a choice opportunity to open the Bible and instruct them in the only life-giving word. 
Thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure to be on the shows. Blessings. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.